0: Tonight, we're joined by Robert Scanlon, a friend, neighbor, and the visionary director of this evening's performance, the poet behind the mask. Bob, of course, is the president and artistic director of the Poets Theatre. He previously served as professor of the practice of theater in Harvard's English department and chaired Harvard's committee on dramatics for more than a decade, He was awarded the Boston Theater Award for Outstanding Director in 1995. He will introduce each portion of this evening's program, and so without further delay, please join me in welcoming Bob and the Poets' Theater back to the Boston Athenaeum.
1: Thank you so much, Lizzie, and uh, welcome to all of you. It's always a pleasure to uh, be here and see such a nice house for one of our Poets Theatre um, collaborations with the Athenaeum. As I put up on the slide there, um, this has been an extraordinarily fruitful collaboration that has injected a huge amount of life in the Poets Theatre. Creative energy has been released among us and um, all the members of the Poets Theatre have just loved this series. Um, Some of you have joined us um, in this room over the past couple of years to hear our poets and our actors bring great writing to life. We had a program on 19th century poets read by contemporary Boston poets we have quoted politicians in their oratory over the years. We had a program on the Boston Abolitionists, and this particular library is one of the repositories of one of the richest historical um, archives of the Boston Abolitionist movement. And I should say, by the way, that our Boston Abolitionist program, which was written by David Goulet, who is performing this evening, He's also one of the two curators of this evening's program, this anthology put together by him and by Lawrence Senelik, who will also be performing side by side uh, with David. But our Boston Abolitionist Program was so successful here that it's been invited elsewhere. Um, It's going to New Bedford. It's going to Historical Society in Lynn. Uh, We're going to be performing it in various other venues in in, uh, Boston and all of our Athenaeum Pieces have turned out to be kind of set pieces for us, crown jewels that are portable, easily portable, and are starting to be invited to be repeated in various places. So we're very grateful to you, Lizzie, for having inaugurated this program and uh, this collaboration, which is just infusing life into us. Um, We've also done a program most recently on immigrants. one on the generations of Adamses, many of them illustrated in this very room. And today, we are focusing on poets who have decided to speak not in their own voice, but in the voice of a character, someone not themselves. The poet puts on a mask. So, let us begin with the poet behind the mask. And as my cast comes out here, um, I would like to introduce them to you. Um, on your far left, and entering first, is uh, Liana Asim, who will be performing uh, in uh, the various roles that you'll see announced. Then David Goulet, next to her, whom I've just introduced you to. Uh, Next to him, Natalia um, (coughs) Baldiga, and uh, next to her, Lawrence Senelik, who many of you know as a lecturer here at the FNAM on many occasions over the years. So, um, without further ado, let's begin. Our first selection (coughs) is something which brings us one of our dear friends, poet and playwright, Erica Funkhauser who is here this evening. And in 1992, she published uh, three monologues in the voices of three American women, Louisa May Alcott, Annie Oakley, and Sacagawea. Sacagawea, bird woman in her native Shoshone. Sacagawea, accompanied by her French husband, Charbonneau, and her newborn son, Jean-Baptiste led Lewis and Clark across the Rockies to the Pacific on an expedition ordered by President Thomas Jefferson. We offer a selection from Bird Woman by Erica Funkhauser.
2: Fort Mandan, November 1804.
3: A squaw of 15, I have earned many names. Sacagawea, bird woman, mon petit shoe, I am all and none of these things. A Shoshone living among the Minnetaree, who stole me from my people when I was only a child. A full blood, traded from brave to brave till they lost me to the Frenchmen in a wager. Two plum seeds, determined my husband. Two satches Chabonneau, fur on his knuckles, and fast, striking fists. I could feel more affection for a bear. But this much Charbonneau has done, he knows how to use me. He has bragged of his Indian wife to the two white soldiers looking for interpreters. He told them My squaw is Limhai Shoshone. You will never cross the Rockies without horses from a tribe. Sulamoma fum can do your talking. He stood me before them like a mule, a strong back. Oh trouble to feed. As soon as the baby is born, she will be ready to travel. The two soldiers stepped slowly forward, their necks white as swans. They gave me their names: Captain Merryweather Lewis, Captain William Clark. Ugly on the tongue, but the one called Lewis is quiet enough to sneak up on magpies, and the fox red hair Clark sits beautifully under a. Headband of otter. They asked for Sacagawea's help. Would I walk with them to the shining mountains? Would I speak to my people? Would I do this for President Thomas Jefferson who must obey his old dream of reaching the Pacific, that far place we call the big lake that stinks? I will see if any shoshone have lived to make a legend of the day my mother and her sisters were killed while down river Sacagawea and her cousin played among the bushes foolish as songbirds stuffing ourselves with berries letting our laughter flash as bright feathers over every gossiping stream
2: on the Missouri, between the Milk River and the river that scolds all others, May, 1805.
3: When I show Clark the burrows beneath driftwood, where mice store their camas root for winter, he fills up his satchel. All the way back to camp, he sings to Baptiste. When we come to an island of onions, he asks me to teach him to dig without injuring the bulbs. Only one thing Clark will not hear. What the Shoshone know of Black Lock. Black Lock to take the mouse's last root. I tell him. Black Lock to kill the she-bear with cub.
2: Fort Clatsop on the Columbia River. Christmas. 1805.
3: William Clark. when we were starving on Cape Disappointment, and you gathered the men together to decide where we should camp for the winter, you asked Sacagawea to speak her mind as well. When she argued in favor of a place with plenty of potatoes, you heard what she said. You recorded her vote along with the others, the votes of the Hunters and Boatmen, the French Engages and the black man, Ben York. You wrote the word Jamie in your red leather journal. Name like a wren's warm whistle. Name spoken only by you.
2: On the beach. Near Tillamook, January, 1806.
3: Some of the salt makers came home to the first, to the fort, talking about the big fish on the beach. Benny Min wanted to see it. So did I. I told William, I have traveled a long way to see the great waters, to stand at their edge. I will take it very hard if you keep me from seeing this. Like the pounding tail of a grouse, my words drummed the ground. A new Sakagouea.
1: The Poets' Theater's own David Goulet implicitly revis- revisits the old story of Daphne and Apollo which many of us will recall from the famous sculpture by Bernini in the v- Villa Ber- Borghese. Poor Daphne with no hashtag me Too movement.
4: Girl goes green. He'd been after me for ages. So I took to the woods, planting myself in a hidden thicket, my toes lengthening, root-like, nails disappearing into the sod, knees knotty, fingers caked with dirt, hair fernier, frondier leafier, my lichen-covered limbs toughening, my shins barked, and mossy my sex. So when he made his long, fantasized move, it was already too late. He bloodied his lip against what he'd been sure he wanted. But I had simply become what I needed to be.
1: Poet Robert Hayden has ventriloquized the voice of Phyllis Wheatley, our first African-American poet. Among her fans was George Washington, In 1773, already famous, she voyaged to London, accompanied by her former owner's son, Nathaniel Wheatley. Hayden imagines her writing to her sister, Oboor.
3: A letter from Phyllis Wheatley, London, 1773. Dear Oboer, our crossing was without event. I could not help at times reflecting on that first, my destined voyage long ago. I yet have some remembrance of its horrors and marveling at God's ways. Last evening, her ladyship presented me to her illustrious friends. I scarce could tell them anything of Africa, though much of Boston and my hope of heaven I read my latest elegies to them. Oh, sable muse, the countess cried, embracing me when I had done. I held back tears, as is my wont, and there were tears in dear Nathaniel's eyes. At supper, I dined apart like captive royalty. The Countess and her guest promised signatures affirming me true poetess, albeit once a slave. Indeed, they were most kind and spoke moreover of presenting me at court. I thought of Pocahontas, an honor to be sure, but one I should no doubt as patriot decline. (laughs) My health is much improved. I feel I may, if God so wills, entirely recover here. Idealic England. Alas, there is no Eden without its serpent. Under the chiming complacence, I hear him hiss. I see his flickering tongue when foppish would-be wits murmur. Of the Yankee peddler and his cannibal mockingbird. Sister, forgive the intrusion of my somberness. Nocturnal mood I would not share with any save your trusted self. Let me disperse in closing such unseemly gloom by mention of an incident you may as I consider droll. Today, a little chimney sweep, his face and hands with soot quite black, staring hard at me, politely asked, Does you, lady, sweep chimneys too? <laughs> I was amused, but dear Nathaniel, ever solicitous, was not. <laughs> I pray the blessings of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be yours, Abundantly. In his name, Phyllis.
1: Richard Howard, who in 1956 was writing plays for the Poets' Theater, has put the following words into the mouth of the Philistine giant Goliath. Howard says the poem is Homage to the bronze David of Donatello, 1430, which appears on the screen. As you will hear, Goliath is aware too of Michelangelo's David, carved a century later from a huge block of Carrara marble that had been nicknamed the Giant.
2: The giant on giant-killing, I am from Gath, where my name in Assyrian means destroyer. A household word by now, and deservedly every household needs a word for destroyer. Nothing secret in the fact, nothing disgraceful about a universal need, and my name is a good word. Try syllables on your own tongue. Say, Goliath. Sounds right, doesn't it? Powerful and Philistine. And destructive somehow. The end came as a body. You see, I am past the end, or I could not know it. Look at my face under his left boot. You will see. Look at my mouth. Is that the mouth of a man surprised by the end of the world? Notice the way my mustache turns over the triumphant toe, a kind of caress and not the only one. Notice my full lips softened into a little smile. You see, the triumph is mine. Whatever the tale. And the scene on my helmet tells the true story. A chariot. Eight naked boys, winged ones. And the wine, the mirror, the parasol, my triumph inherits me. He holds my sword. He is what I see. That is why you see him. The naked boy without wings. Climb across the belly, up the... (laughs) insolent haunches from which the buttocks are slung there that's the boy's sling scan the rhyming landscape of the waist between the simple nipples arched by his simpler supple arms even the vulnerable shoulder blades the vain wrists are present but not the face not david's mouth that is a curved weapon used to kill a smile. And the carved eyes, what are they seeing? Only the body sees. The eyes look neither down at me nor out at you. They look away, for they cannot acquit what is there. The eyes know what the body will become. It is why the sun broke through me that morning. No stone could lay Goliath low. See it still in the boy's hand? No, no need for a stone. My eyes were my only enemy, my only weapon too, and fell upon David like a sword. The body is what is eternal. The rest, boots, hat, ribboned and wreathed, even the coarse boy's hair that has not once been cut brevity, accidents, though it is no accident when it is all you have. It is what giant killers must become. Michelangelo, they become giants. No head of Goliath kisses those unsolicited feet. No one is there. Yes, I go. I have already gone. I would rather mourn my going than mourn my David. I am the man Goliath. And my name in Israel is also a household word. Every household needs the word. Perhaps there is a shame in that. A secret about such universal need. But it is a good word. My name. Try it. On your own tongue, savor the hard syllables. Say, Goliath, which in Hebrew means exile.
1: Francisca Aguirre, known in Spain as Paca Aguirre. This poet reflects on Odysseus's wife, Penelope, who patiently endured the passage of that slow disaster we call time. Every evening, at dusk, she faced her night's work of unweaving all that she had woven during the day.
4: Penelope unravels. There is always adolescence and nothing else at dusk. When the soft bend in the evening insinuates its desolate curve, something within us also bends over. We have very few things then. No possession accompanies us. No possession offends us either. There is a slow disaster in these hours that seem the only ones in the day. Those which leave us in the old limits those which cannot give us anything, those of which we do not ask anything, there is a tender and decomposing disaster in the final hours of this day that has gone by like the others. And just like them, it has reached the burning beauty of that which gazes upon nothingness. Leaning over my windowsill, I see how a section of time slides by. Evening has softly embalmed the street's noisy happenings. The sky. Is shrinking little by little, and a burst of patience wraps the world in soft, ashy hugs. While the night opens up at the corners, the moon sets on strange flowers.
1: Ulysses, or as Homer called him, Odysseus, was imagined by Alfred Lord Tennyson, sunk in a post-war slump, bored back home in Ithaca, hungry for action, eager still in old age for new adventures.
5: Ulysses, it little profits that an idle king by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife, I meet and dole unequal laws unto a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. All times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that loved me and alone on shore. And when through scudding drifts the rainy Hyades vexed the dim sea, I am become a name, for always roaming with a hungry heart, much have I seen and known, cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers, far on the ringing plains of windy Troy, I am a part of all that I have met yet all experience is an arch where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. How dull it is to pause, to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use. There lies the port, the vessel puffs her sail, there gloom the dark, broad seas. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and fought with me, you and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil, death closes all, but something ere the end. Some work of noble note may yet be done not unbecoming men that strove with gods. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes, the slow moon climbs, the deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off, and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows, for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. It may be that the gulfs will wash us down. It may be we shall touch the happy isles. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield.
1: When it comes to being bored after life-altering adventures, what about Robinson Crusoe? saved from his island and stuck in England, reduced by his fame to serving as a resource for the local museum. Here is Crusoe in England by our locally beloved Elizabeth Bishop.
2: A new volcano has erupted, the papers say. Last week I was reading where some ship saw an island being born. At first a breath of steam, ten miles away, then a black fleck, basalt, probably, rose in the mate's binoculars and caught on the horizon like a fly. They named it. But my poor old islands, still unrediscovered, unrenameable, none of the books has ever got it right. Well, I had fifty-two miserable small volcanoes I could climb with a few slithery strides. Volcanoes dead as ash heaps. I used to sit on the edge of the highest one and count the others standing up, naked and leaden with their heads blown off. I'd think that if they were the size I thought volcanoes should be, then I had become a giant. And if I had become a giant, I couldn't bear to think what size the goats and turtles were. Or the gulls, or the overlapping rollers, a glittering hexagon of rollers, closing and closing in, but never quite glittering and glittering, though the sky was mostly overcast. My island seemed to be a sort of cloud dump. All the hemispheres' leftover clouds arrived and hung above the craters. Their parched throats were hot to touch. Why was that? Was it was that why it rained so much? And why sometimes the whole place hissed? The turtles lumbered by, high domed, hissing like tea kettles. I often gave way to self pity. Do I deserve this? I suppose I must. I wouldn't be here otherwise. Was there a moment when I actually chose this? I don't remember, but there could have been. (laughs) What's wrong with self pity, anyway? With my legs dangling down familiarly over a crater's edge, I told myself pity should begin at home. So the more pity I felt, the more I felt at home. The island smelled of Goats and guano. The goats were white. So were the gulls. And both too tame, or else they thought I was a goat or a gull. Ba, ba, ba. And shriek, 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 ba, shriek, ba. I still can't shake them from my ears. They're hurting now. The questioning shrieks, the equivocal replies over a ground of hissing rain and hissing ambulating turtles got on my nerves. I got so tired of the very colors. So one day, I dyed a baby goat, bright red, with my red berries, just to see something a little different, and then his mother wouldn't recognize him. <coughs> Dreams were the worst. Of course, I dreamt of food and love, But they were pleasant rather than otherwise. But then I dream of things like slitting a baby's throat, mistaking it for a baby goat. I have nightmares of other islands stretching away from mine, infinities of islands, islands spawning islands, like frogs' eggs turning into polywogs. Polywogs of islands... Knowing that I had to live on each and every one eventually for ages. They just bring their flora, their fauna, their geography. Just when I thought it couldn't get worse, I couldn't stand it another minute. Friday came. Accounts of that have everything all wrong. Friday was nice. We were friends. If only he'd been a woman. I wanted to propagate my kind. So did he, I think, poor boy. He'd pet the baby goats sometimes, race with them or carry one around. Pretty to watch. He had a pretty body. And then one day they came and took us off. Now I live here, another island. Doesn't seem like one, but who decides? My blood was full of them. My brain bred islands. But that archipelago has petered out. I'm old. I'm bored, too. Drinking my real tea surrounded by uninteresting lumber. The local museum asked me to leave everything to them. The flute, the knife, the shriveled shoes, my shedding goatskin trousers, balls have gotten into the fur, the parasol that took me such a time, remembering the way the ribs should go. It still will work, but folded up it looks like a plucked and skinny fowl. How can anyone want such things? And Friday, my dear Friday, died of measles 17 years ago, come March.
1: Don Marquis was a prolific newspaper columnist in the early 20th century, famous for inventing the characters of Archie, a poetic cockroach, and Mahitabel, an alley cat of loose morals. Archie's poems are all in lowercase because he cannot hit the shift key on his typewriter. <clears throat> in The Old Trooper, he immortalizes the Oraton Troopers of the Victorian Stage.
2: I ran into Mahitabella again last evening. She's inhabiting a decayed trunk which lies in an alley in Greenwich Village in company with the most villainous tomcat I have ever seen.
3: But there is nothing wrong about the association, Archie. She told me. It is merely a plutonic attachment.
2: And the thing can be believed for the Tom looks like one of Pluto's demons.
3: It is a theater trunk, Archie.
2: Annabelle told me. And
3: Tom is an old theater cat. He has given his life to the theater. He claims that Edwin Booth once kicked him out of the way and then cried because he had done it. And at another time, he says, in a case of emergency... He played a bloodhound in a production of Uncle Tom's Cabin.
5: The stage is not what it used to be.
3: Tom says. He puts his front paw on his breast and says.
5: They don't have it anymore. They don't have it here. The old troopers are gone. There's nobody can troop anymore. They're all amateurs nowadays. They haven't got it here. There are only five or six of us old-time troopers left. This generation does not know what stage presence is. What personality is. That is what they lack. Personality. Where would they get it? Where would they get the training my old friends got in the stock companies? Finish is what they lack. Finish. And they haven't got it. Here.
3: And again he laid his paw on his breast.
5: They are amateurs nowadays, rank amateurs, all of them. For two seasons, I played the dog in Joseph Jefferson's Rip Van Winkle. It is true, I never came on the stage, but he knew I was just off, and it helped him. I would like to see one of your modern theater cats act a dog so well that it would convince a trooper like Joe Jefferson. But They haven't got it nowadays. They haven't got it. Here. <laughs> I come of a long line of theater cats. My grandfather was with Forrest. Here oh, He had it. He was a real trooper. My grandfather said... He had a voice that used to shake the ferry boats on the North River. Once, he lost his beard, and my grandfather dropped from the fly gallery and landed under his chin and played his beard for the rest of the act. You don't see any theater cats that could do that nowadays. They haven't got it. They haven't got it A he
3: says.
5: Both our professions are
1: being ruined by amateurs. <laughs> <laughs> now, another Richard Howard poem. He is, by nature and inclination, a poet's theater poet par excellence.
4: <laughs> Mrs. Eden, in town for the day. Sorry I'm late, I had to drive way out of my way to pick up coyote piss for the garden. We use about a quart a month. It really does deter the deer. This man I know at the zoo keeps it for me, for a group of us actually, all gardeners. He happens to be a keeper of coyotes, hyenas, whatever. And he keeps coyote piss as well. Under refrigeration, of course. Sells it right there at the zoo. I hate the long drive, but I love having no more deer in the garden. Expensive too, or should I say deer, but it's definitely not a competitive item. Where else can you get coyote piss that's full strength? not reconstituted from crystals or from concentrate. It has to be fresh from the wild or the damn deer just ignore it. I wonder how such merchandise would be collected. Tom says there's something they call a Texas catheter, really not much more than a perforated condom attached to a bottle. Have you ever seen such goings on at a zoo? Well, neither have I, but of course I wasn't looking. Who would be, unless you knew? However he gets hold of it, it works. Today our keeper told me human hair has the same effect on most deer. We could try that. Think how much cheaper, for one thing. A year's sweepings from Tom's barber would cost less than a week's gasoline. Even so, people's hair. Better the other. I wonder which animals would keep off if we tried our own instead of coyotes. Moose, diktik, gazelle, caribou, hartebeest, canoe.
1: <coughs> Robert Browning was so beloved a poet that Browning society sprang up all over the English-speaking world, including here in Boston. Today, we would call them his fan base. One of Browning's most famous monologues is a set piece featuring a nameless duke, whom I've named on the slide because we know who he is, and an emissary from a nameless count, who is arranging a marriage between our duke and the count's daughter. This will not be the duke's first marriage.
2: That's my last duchess, painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that a piece of wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Uh, will it please you, sit and look at her? I said, Frau Pandolf, by design, for never read strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So, not the first are you to ask thus, sir. But not her husband's presence only that called that spot of joy into the Duchess's cheek. Perhaps Frau Pandolf chanced to say, Her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or uh, paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whate'er she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, it was all one. My favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her. The white mule she rode around the terrace. All and each would draw from her alike the approving speech. Or blush, at least. She thanked men. Good. But thanked, somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked the gift of a 900 years old name with anybody's gift. Who'd stoop to blame that sort of trifling, even had your skill in speech, which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such a one and say, just this or that, and you disgust me. Here you miss, or there exceed the mark, and if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours, forsooth and made excuse, even then would be some stooping, and I chose not to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whenever I passed her, but who passed without much the same smile? This grew. I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Uh, Will it please you rise? We'll meet the company below then. I repeat. The Count your master's known munificence is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed. Though, of course, his fair daughter's self, as I avowed, it started. is my object. Nay, anyway, we'll go down together, sir. Oh, notice Neptune, though. Taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which Klaus of Innsbruck cast from in bronze
1: for me. I can't help but notice about this poem that the entire poem is written in rhymed couplets, which are completely buried by the rolling syntax, um, which is an inevitable way to read it dramatically. But if you look at the page, you could make this into doggerel. It's an astonishing technical tour de force. I'd also like to point out that the Duchess in question He was 15 years old when she married the real uh, count, uh, the Duke of Ferrara. He had her poisoned at the age of 17. So the negotiations for the new wife, which is what's dramatized in there, is a startling, startling piece of Renaissance history brought to life by a Victorian poet. And now we move to Richard Howard again who, rather than let the Duke have the last word, has irrepressibly provided a retort from the emissary. Nicholas Mardrus. he had to look that up to know who that was. The man addressed by the Duke of Ferrara in Browning's poem and Nicholas in this poem reports back to his employer, the Count of Tyrol, whose daughter, Barbara, was under consideration to become Ferrara's next wife and duchess.
5: My lord recalls Ferrara, how walls rise out of water yet appear to recede identically into it, as if built in both directions, soaring and sinking. (laughs) Such mirroring was my first dismay. My next, having crossed the moat, was making out that for all its grandeur, the great pile observed close to is close to a ruin. All that pretension of marble display, the whole improbable menagerie with but one purpose, having to be seen. Such was the matter of Ferrara, and such the manner, when at last we met of the Duke in greeting my lordship's envoy. Life in fallen stone. Appraising a set of cameos just brought from Cairo by a Jew in his trust, his grace had been wrapped in connoisseurship, He was affability itself, once his mind could be deflected from mere objects. At last I presented the portrait of your daughter, the Countess, observing the while his countenance. No fault was found with our contract, of which each article had been so correctly framed as to ascertain a prenuptial alliance which must persuade and please the most punctilious and impecunious of future husbands." His grace acknowledged himself beguiled by Cranick's portrait of our young Countess, praising the design, the hues, the glaze, the frame, and appeared averse for a while even to letting the panel leave his hands. Examining those same hands, I was convinced that no matter what the result of our, at this point, promising negotiations, your daughter's likeness must now remain for good, as we say, among Ferrara's treasures, already one more trophy to his grace's multifarious holdings. Real bother commenced only when the duke himself led me out of the audience chamber and laboriously to a secret tent house high on the battlements. When he can indulge those despotic tastes he denominates, half-smiling over the heartless words, the relative consolations of semblance. Sir, suppose you draw that curtain, smiling in earnest now, and so I sought, but what appeared a piece of drapery proved a painted deceit. My embarrassment afforded a cue for audible laughter, and only then his grace, visibly relishing his trick, turned the thing round, whereupon appeared on the reverse the late Duchess of Ferrara to the life. Instanta that you praise the portrait so readily provided by one Pandolf, a monk uh, by some profane article attached to the court, hence answerable for taking likenesses as required. In but a day's diligence, or so it was claimed, I could not discern aught to be loved in that countenance itself, likely to rival, much less to excel, the life illumined in Cranach's image of our Countess which his grace had set beside the dead woman's presentment. One last hard look, whereupon the Duke resumed his discourse in an altered tone. It would appear he marked a mortal chastisement, in fact, inflicted on his poor Duchess. Put away, I take it so, for smiling. At whom? Brother Pandolf? Some visitor to court during the sitting? My lord... At the time it was delivered to me thus, the admonition, if indeed it was any such thing, seemed no more of a menace than the rest of his rhodomontade. But upon reflection, I suppose we had better take the old reprobate at his unspeakable word. Why, even assuming his boasts should be as plausible as his avarice, no cause for dismay. Once ensconced here as the duchess, your daughter need no more apprehend the duke's murderous temper than his matchless taste. For I have devised a means whereby the dowry so flagrantly pursued by our insolvent duke, instead of being paid as he pleads in one globo's sum, should rip into his coffers by degrees. Say, one-fifth each year, then after five such years, the dowry itself to be doubled, always assuming that her grace enjoys her usual smiling health. The years are her ally in such an arbitrament, and with confidence my lord can ensure the new duchess, assuming her duke abides by these stipulations and his own propensity for accumulating semblances, the long devotion so long as he lasts, of her last duke. Or more likely, if I guess right, your daughter's intent of that young lordling I might make so bold as to designate her next duke as well. Ever determined in my lordship's service, I remain his envoy to Ferrara, as to the world, Nicolaus
1: Madrid. William Butler Gates. He said that lust and rage danced attendance upon his old age. The poet took on the voice of two women, the first a chambermaid who looks and sings at her exhausted lover asleep on her breast, and the second, Crazy Jane, a character Yeats used several times pushing back against a bishop who wants her to leave the life of the flesh and think of heavenly mansions instead
3: the chambermaid's first song
4: Jane talks with the bishop. I met the bishop on the road, and much said he and I.
2: Those breasts are flat and fallen now. Those veins must soon be dry. Live in a heavenly mansion and not in some foul style.
4: Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul, I cried. My friends are gone. But that's a truth nor brave nor bed denied, learned in bodily loneliness and in the heart's pride. A woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent, but love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement, for nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent.
1: John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, was a hedonist and a libertine during the English Restoration. His frank and graphic depictions of sensuality were scandalous even in his own time. This poem is spoken by a young woman, the man she to the man she calls her ancient lover. Rochester, incidentally, himself died in his thirties of at least one venereal disease
3: a song of a young lady to
1: her ancient mother.
3: Ancient person for whom I, all the flattering youth, defy, long be it ere thou grow old, aching, shaking, crazy cold, but still continue as thou art, ancient person of my heart. On thy withered lips and dry, which like barren furrows lie, brooding kisses I will pour. Shall thy youthful heat restore such kind showers in autumn fall and a second spring recall? Nor from thee will ever part, ancient person of my heart thy nobler part which but to name in our sex would be counted shame by age's frozen grasp possessed and soothed from his ice shall be released and soothed by my reviving hand in former warmth and vigor stand all a lover's wish can reach for thy joy my love shall teach and for thy pleasure shall improve all that art can add to love. Yet still, I love thee without art, ancient person of my heart.
1: Lloyd Schwartz has been a friend of the Poets' Theater for years. He sits on our advisory board, and back in 1990, Uh, The Poets Theatre presented a staged performance of a script he prepared based on his first book of poems, These People. Lloyd is a Pulitzer Prize-winning music critic. You can hear him on NPR's Fresh Air. And he has served as co-editor of an edition of the collected works of Elizabeth Bishop for the Library of America. He was her student at Harvard. In the following poem, he puts on the mask of a quiet woman, Named Hannah, who, incidentally, identifies him in her monologue.
4: Ham. I walk on hooked rugs. My beds are covered with patchwork. Across the road, they sell corn and red beans, fresh picked. And the milk in bottles has a layer of cream, an inch thick at the top. This was my father's home I have come back to. My elderly cousin is working her latest jigsaw in the spare room. My guest for the weekend is a young teacher with hair longer than mine and a nicely trimmed beard. He is reading my first editions. We'll talk of novels and politics, read the papers, play Scrabble with my elderly cousin, Catch up on the unread magazines. He'll help me carry and unload the books I have moved here from the city. Steel wool, the old chest, ready for finishing. So many complicated, trivial, and lovely things. A sturdy old leather Bible with gold edges and patterns in the rough grain, the names of of ancestors firmly inscribed. I've had a good life without sex, or sordidness, or unmerited happiness.
1: Robert Suffy, Sufi my least favorite poet on the planet, was a friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge How that happened, I'll never know. And he shared their youthful enthusiasm for the French Revolution. Later, his politics shifted to the right, and he was a poet laureate of England for 20 years under Tory governance. Hazlitt said of him, he wooed liberty as a young lover, but it was perhaps more as a mistress than a bride, and he has since wedded with an elderly and not very reputable lady called... Legitimacy. Southey also coined the term autobiography and wrote the first version of what would become Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Here, through the voice of the pious sage, he hands out advice to live by to a younger man.
3: The old man's comforts and how he gained them. You are old. Father William, the young man cried, the few locks which are left you are gray. You are hail, Father William, a hearty old man. Now tell me the reason, I pray.
2: In the days of my youth, Father William replied, I remembered that youth would fly fast, and abused not my health and my vigor at first that I never might need them at last.
3: You are old, Father William the young man cried, and pleasures with youth pass away. And yet you lament not the days that are gone. Now tell me the reason, I pray.
2: In the days of my youth, Father William replied, I remembered that youth could not last. I thought of the future, whatever I did, that I never might grieve for the past.
3: You are old, Father William. The young man cried, and life must be hastening away. You are cheerful and love to converse upon death. Now tell me the reason I pray. I am
2: cheerful, young man, Father William replied. But the cause, thy attention, engage. For the days of my youth, I remembered my God, and he hath not forgotten my age.
1: <clears throat> the generation of Suthi, thank God, gave way to another, and the Oxford Don Charles Ludwig Dodgson, under the mask of Lewis Carroll, clearly agreeing with our opinion of Suthi, thought it was perhaps time to revisit aged Father William.
0: You are old, Father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right?
5: In my youth, Father William replied to his son, I fear it might injure the brain, but now that I'm perfectly sure I had none, may well, I do it again and again.
0: <laughs> you are old, said the youth, as I mentioned before, and have grown most uncommonly fat. Yet you turned a back Somersault in at the door. Pray, what is the reason of that? In my youth,
5: said the sage as he shook his grey locks,
0: I kept all my limbs very subtle.
5: By the use of this ointment, one shilling the box, allow me to sell you a couple.
0: (laughs) You are old, said the youth, and your jaws are too weak. For anything tougher than suet. Yet you finished the goose with the bones and the beak. Pray, how did you manage to do it?
5: Ah, In my youth, said his father, I took to the law and argued each case with my wife. And the muscular strength which it gave to my jaw has lasted the rest of my life.
0: You are old, said the youth. One would hardly suppose that your eye was as steady as ever, yet you balanced an eel on the end of your nose. What made you so awfully clever?
5: I have answered three questions, and that is enough, said his father. Don't give yourself airs. Do you think I can listen all day to such stuff? Be off, or I'll kick you downstairs. <laughs>
1: I'm <laughs>